This episode is sponsored by BetterHelp. Have you been struggling lately? Maybe you're having trouble sleeping, difficulty with the relationship, or just suffering from low self-esteem. If so, then BetterHelp wants to help you. BetterHelp offers licensed therapists who are trained to listen and to help you. You get to talk to your therapist in a private, online environment at your convenience. There's a broad range of expertise in BetterHelp's 20,000-plus therapist network, and they give you access to help that may not be available in your area. You just need to fill out a questionnaire to help assess your specific needs, and then you get matched with a therapist in under 48 hours. Join the 2 million-plus people who have taken charge of their mental health with an experienced BetterHelp therapist. And there's a special offer to Nowhere to Be Found listeners. You'll get 10% off of your first month, but only if you go through the link or type in betterhelp.com slash ntbf for Nowhere to Be Found. That's better betterhelp.com slash ntbf. Thanks again to BetterHelp for sponsoring this episode. And you can find the link in our show notes and on our website, nowheretobefoundpodcast.com. Tonight's episode is brought to you in part by Bruno Made, where you can find a large selection of custom handcraft pieces that fit perfectly in your home. From small pieces like floating shelves for your home office to large custom pieces like barn doors and wedding backdrops, Bruno Made can make your vision come to life. Bruno Made is a family-owned and operated business that became a reality when they decided they themselves could make the furnishing options that they were finding available at the big box stores, not only with better quality materials, but perfectly customized size, color, finish, and look. Their customers appreciate not only their designs, but their affordable prices. From their family to yours, shop Bruno Made on their Etsy shop at www.brunomadeshop.com. Etsy.com and use the code NOWHERE for 10% off of your order today. Previously on Nowhere to be Found. It seemed like she could handle anything really emotionally pretty well. Um, just a strong person. She was very supportive of her friend. But I found her and uh, she was really surprised that I was able to find her number online it really tripped her out but I mean she has definitely proven that she might not really need people like the rest of us need to be around people I'm your host Amanda Papineau and this is nowhere to be found Trying to understand this case means trying to put yourself in Fauna's shoes and see things from her mindset. It's difficult to get into the mind of someone else, especially a stranger. I wanted to talk to someone who was better qualified to talk about what could have been going on in Fauna's mind in the days leading up to her disappearance. Yes, my name is Philip Taft, and I'm a licensed clinical and forensic psychologist. I practice uh, out of Corsicana, Texas. I have another office in Waco, Texas. 
and I have been a licensed psychologist for 21 years now. Uh, I see people at all stages of the lifespan, from children to adolescents to adults, and I have a staff of um, 16 providers in the forensic and clinical realm who also see individuals across the lifespan. Uh, and we also perform um, forensic psychology functions, such as court-appointed or privately hired psychological evaluations to determine all sorts of things, personal injury, um, things like criminal responsibility, uh, competency, and that's something that sometimes leads to expert testimony for myself or for one of my contract providers. And this is something that I love to do, and uh, and I'm grateful to be able to do it. Yeah, well, thank you so much. I think it's going to be so good, you know, hearing all the details of, of this case and other cases. Um, you know, we can kind of speculate, uh, myself included and, and listeners, as to what may be going on in in Fauna's mind in this case. and um, But we don't know, you know, and we're not sure exactly how uh, certain life situations affect people. And, um, you know, your work is, is just kind of right up the alley of um, what, what I think would be relevant for this case. And, and so I wanted to get some, um, some of your thoughts now that you've done uh, a little bit of research on, on Fauna's case and, um, and hear what, what your thoughts are on, on this, uh, on the details of her leaving and, and her mental state from, from your professional opinion at that time. That sounds good. I absolutely would love to um, provide anything that, that I'm aware of or know. Um, and yeah. that might also help um, someone who's listening. Great. Okay. So we know that she kind of left in a, in a frenzy um, after a, a bit of a disagreement between her dad and herself. Um, I guess we can kind of start there. Yeah, that makes perfect sense, uh, Amanda, because when you talk about her leaving in a frenzy, when someone like Fauna loses someone so close to her, like her brother Dallas, Mm -hmm. And she had been through other losses previous to that. Um, it throws your mind literally into a state of fight, flight, or freeze. You know, that's we've all kind of heard those states uh, mm -hmm. in response to trauma. But a lot of people don't think about it in regard to loss. The brain chemistry is still activated, and it can put people into a state that is very uncharacteristic for their normal. Uh, personality, their normal way to um, enter into the world, the normal way we experience them. And so uh, to hear that she was in a frenzy, possibly um, that makes perfect sense. That would be that flight, possibly a combination of the fight or flight uh, response to the loss. And sure. in that state of mind, she may not have been behaving at all like her usual self. Okay. 
Yeah, and that that's what we just keep hearing over and over in all in all different parts of this um of her timeline, of the things that we know, things that places she went, I just keep hearing over and over. That's so unlike Fauna. You know, this is very uncharacteristic of her, which is what's so worrisome, you know, to friends and family is when you hear these extremes and you're thinking back on the character of the of the loved one in there she's this reserved um you know she's been described as very uh responsible just down to earth and here she has this um you know kind of erratic timeline and and series of events that people are saying no 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 that's just not fauna but in your um experience it actually fits right in with uh, the amount of grief and trauma that she's just experienced. Exactly right. And how many times have we seen somebody being interviewed, uh, you know, on the television news or in some type of special where they're interviewing a family member or a neighbor and they say, this is the last thing we expected from them. Um, we never saw it coming is what we hear a lot. And that's because you literally have a part of your brain that I call the human brain, and this is most prominently in the, the part of your brain structure called the frontal lobes. That's where we plan ahead. We think we we decide what we're going to say and what we're going to do before we do it. It's that old think before you act part of the brain. Mm-hmm. Um, and it helps us to have a lot of self-control. But our lower parts of our brain, our physical brain structure and the chemistry that's activated under trauma or severe loss that's more of a, what I refer to as the animal brain mm-hmm. and think about what animals do when they're under threat. They, you know, if you're looking at a crocodile under threat, it's, it's going to hiss, it's going to snap. It's going to, uh, if it's a little scared bunny rabbit, that little bunny rabbit is just going to freeze dead still. Right. Um, or if it's under enough threat immediately, it's going to jackrabbit off. Right. And so that's why we see, ourselves not behaving normally when we feel threatened. We behave from the deeper, more reactive centers of our brain that take over instantaneously and automatically. Okay. Because that was one thing, you know, so she had had this trip planned, it sounds like, from talking to John, and she she had wanted to go, and he, he knew she wanted to go down to Grants Pass to um, kind of get some closure, it sounded like to me, uh, giving some belongings away and letting some friends know in person that Dallas had passed, which that one stood out to me a little bit, just that they didn't, um, they're very private, it seems. So not telling anybody at the time of Dallas's death um, was something that stood out. But after talking to a few people, that is um, normal behavior. That is something that they've done before um, with with Aura, her sister's death. They didn't really spread the news around or get get people to come to the funeral. So um he knew that she wanted to go on this trip, but it was the way that she left so suddenly and so late in the evening that triggered him to say, well, wait, why don't you just wait until the morning when it's safer? But if she is in that flight where it's like, nope, have to go right now. Um, it sounds like there's really nothing that once you're in that animal brain, you're not getting talked to logically and, and it all you know calms down. Is that right? Right. And so irrational thinking can be sudden and instantaneous 
such as if I'm walking on the street and somebody walks up to me with a gun and sticks it in my face, mm-hmm. um, that's instant, mm-hmm. right? But in Fauna's situation, it was a series of major losses and Dallas being the latest one that had to massively impact her. And and so she wasn't necessarily instantaneously reacting, but it can be a mix of, you know, I've been thinking about some things way back in my mind my whole life. And all of a sudden, this event has activated those deep thoughts about what I want to do with my life or what I think is important in life. Mm-hmm. And and mix that with the frenzied feeling of urgency or now I've made my decision. And so that is kind of it's not all or nothing with regard to the animal brain versus the human brain. Our brain is interacting. And so she may have had a lot of long term thoughts or planning or, or kind of messages deep inside her. that got activated by the horrible loss of her brother that was so sudden. And once she got going on that mission, you know, the mission may not have made a whole lot of sense because the animal brain is, you know, moving back and forth between stages of threat and reacting. But then there's that kind of other part of her brain, the human brain that's going, this is what I'm going to do. This is what I've been thinking I would do. This is what I should do. This is what I must do. Yeah. And even this trip is just so unplanned. I mean, sure. She's like, I have to go, you know, she packs up the car, but she doesn't even have the next step planned out. You know, we know that she spent the night in her car that night um, because she just, well, actually we don't know that. We don't know where she spent the night. We assume she spent the night in her car somewhere. um, And then she made it down to Sean's house the following day. But, you know, it's just all over the map. She didn't say, okay, I'm going to this hotel and I have this, this. And then even when she gets to Sean's house, you know, he's explaining to us that she's still looking for uh, the next step, even looking for an address for Randy. And so it is very um, unplanned, it seems. Yeah, those are definitely details that don't appear to have well thought through um, clearly delineated steps. Uh, and that, and that would be perfectly consistent with this mixed state of mind. Um, it's not psychoticism because, you know, the common term for that is crazy. Okay. But psychoticism would be very apparent to someone like Sean who interacted with mm-hmm. her, you know, she would be talking about things that seemed delusional or she would be in a manic state of mind where she would be almost yelling in his face and not realizing it. She would have um, rapid pressured speech is what we call it. Um, and, and according to what I listened to on your podcast, Sean did not experience her as being in an elevated pressured state of mind. Right. Um, she seemed to him to, to be, you know, responding fairly, um, uh, normally in her regular way of interacting, although it was a short visit, but even a short visit with someone who's psychotic, you would, you would be, your eyes would be popping out of your head and you'd be kind of stepping back going, whoa, something is wrong with them. 
And and he, he didn't describe her that way. Right. In fact, quite the opposite. I mean, they had a moment um, in, in the driveway of her telling him of Dallas's passing, very emotional, um, but not not heightened in the way that you're saying, you know, sound, sounded more like a quiet moment um, type of thing. And then uh, their conversations about the dog and all the things that that would have been normal, you know, had Dallas even been there with her feeding the dogs and um, talking about hiking and stuff like that. So. Right. That was, that was a, for her, that was a appropriate grief response. If there's such a way to say that everybody grieves differently, but it looked like maybe a better way to say that is a healthy grief response Mm. where she was in touch with her true emotions they both cried together. Mm-hmm. And and that is a healing moment in grief when when we cry together with someone that cries with us. Um, they shared that experience. She also had purposeful ideas about what she wanted to do. Um, and not only with Sean, but with other people. And and that that for me means that there's no way that that person at that moment could be described as delusional or psychotic. Okay. Well, that's good to know because yeah, we just don't, um, psychotic break or a mental break is something that's been brought up a lot as, as well. That must be the only way that, that this could have happened that she would have left, but, um, not in the true sense of, of the definition from what you're saying is she appeared to be in that, which is good news. Um, cause it means that she can probably be making less reckless decisions Right. I mean, she can be kind of in her own brain a little bit. Right. And, you know, at that point, we could say, at least based on Sean's report, that, you know, she was working at least somewhat rationally in in her state of mind. Um, And we can also say that that she was also at the same time working reactively, because after not having seen him for so long, and to show up and do that within, I think it was a 30 minute right, visit. Right. You know, that's, that's not necessarily fully rational behavior. And that's why I think it's more consistent with that complicated loss mm-hmm. that's activating that part of the mind. Well, and he said that she kept repeating to him over and over, he's in a better place. He's in a better place. And, and that's a common thing that we say, you know, when we lose somebody, I think it helps us feel better. Um, and, and I, you know, we really believe it, but, um, he also mentioned that he felt like she was kind of trying to convince herself that that was true to kind of alleviate the pain because he's not. Certainly. It seems like when I hear that, you know, Elizabeth Kubler-Ross, uh, in the sixties gave us the first kind of major known model of the stages of grief. Mm-hmm. And when I hear you say that, as reported by Sean, those stages start with denial. So it's almost like the shock, the denial where, you know, we just can't even grasp the reality that this person is gone. Well, she's not in that one. If she's saying that to herself or she's actively fighting, Mm -hmm. you know, in her conscious mind that, that he is gone and he's in a better place. The second stage is anger. And maybe you know, people say, well, it's stages. So you go one to the next to the next. Well, maybe she was mixing a lot of the stages because that happens 
you move back and forth between them or you have some combination of the stages. Anyone who's worked in uh, psychotherapy as long as I have knows that there's no pure stepwise way to do complex interactions of the mind, such as a loss like this. The next stage would be bargaining. She could have been doing some of that, but we don't know that. The next stage is depression. Um, and the final stage is acceptance. And so what I'm hearing her trying to assert in that report is acceptance. He's in a better place, is trying to hold on to the acceptance that this person is truly gone. And I'm trying to accept that. And I'm trying to move forward with that reality. And that also tells us, you know, it wasn't how many days after uh, Dallas passed did she end up at Sean's house? Ten. Was it, um, ten days. Yeah, just ten days. And so that's remarkable to already be trying to work with, you know, on a stage of acceptance at that point. But this is a woman who had been through other very close, very serious losses. And so, unfortunately, she was she was quite skilled at you know, dealing with loss in her life. Not her first rodeo, which is awful. I mean, it's kind of unspeakable and absolutely unrelatable to me. You know, I think most people have lost somebody close to them um, in their life, but three people within the last two decades of not, not just someone closest close to you, but the closest people that could be to you in this family that is, um, a little bit isolated just by the way that they do things. Um, you know, there's that they don't have smartphones. They're not big social media people. They don't really watch a lot of TV. So they kind of just stick to this core inner circle that they have of their family. And it's devastating to say that kind of one by one, um, they've all, Fauna's lost them. John and Fauna have lost them all. And so it's, it's so unrelatable. I don't think that most people have experienced that amount of grief or could even relate to what that would feel like. Correct. It's, it's un, unimaginable that somebody it's, it's unimaginable that somebody could go through that much loss mm-hmm. um, and still, you know, be functioning. I personally can't imagine it. Um, so the other thing that I'm really picking up on that you mentioned that's important is that this is a family that tended to be private mm-hmm. and a little bit kind of prone to be off the grid. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, there's very consistent parts of that with Fauna in that she didn't necessarily tell anyone what her plan was. And she, um, appears to be making decisions and choices without really communicating well, we know she didn't communicate to her father. Right. She gave some communications to Sean, but that's entirely consistent with what you just mentioned, that this family kind of had a uh, shared approach to the world where we don't necessarily wear our cards openly. We don't show our cards. We keep our cards very close to our best. Right. Well, that and... Um to me, when I heard that she wasn't carrying a cell phone, which there is some uh, controversy there as to whether whether or not she had a cell phone. If she did, um, she either had Dallas's cell phone or she picked up a prepaid phone along the way. Um, either way, to leave her cell phone at home, 
her personal one. She actually has two that she left at home. Also struck me um, either on on the front where it's like, okay, she's she's doing that thing where she wants it to be very private. She doesn't want people to call her. She doesn't want um, communication or the ability for somebody to track her down. Or is it she didn't think about it because she was so frazzled in that moment? I don't know. Right. And it, and it could be either because when you look at both sides of that, the choice to leave it behind is consistent with the family approach to the world. Mm-hmm. I want to be private here. I've got something going on in my life and I don't want other people necessarily involved. Um, so that could have been a purposeful planned mm-hmm. choice. On the flip side, it could totally be the the animal brain, the reactivity um, that we talked about earlier, where she accidentally left it behind. Um, and, and there's really no way to know because we don't have any, what I would say, discerning details that are firsthand reports mm-hmm. from anybody that would give us clarity there. Right. Sean mentioned that that she specifically said to him out loud, though, that um, she does not have a phone with her. Um, that doesn't really tell us either way, but at least she's thinking about it. Like, Oh, I got to kind of plan ahead because I don't have this phone. Um, but one thing that, that kind of made me think that it was more the animal brain was she also didn't bring anything else with her, like clothes, her toothbrush, you know, things that you would need, even if you were being private and you wanted to just do this on your own and not have people contact, you would still need a change of clothes. And she had to go buy them later. That is certainly more consistent with the reactivity of the animal brain, for sure. Yes. Okay. Okay. So then, you know, she leaves Sean's. uh, She has this address. There's a lot of uncertainty. I went back and drove her timeline myself. And there's huge, huge hours and hour long gaps where we just don't know what she was doing. Um, and we can't, we can't really know unless somebody comes forward and says, you know, she was at my house or something like that. But, um, something that, that really stands out in her timeline is after she leaves Sean's house, she picks up a female hitchhiker. And that is a huge, um, that's a huge question mark for us. Apparently again, very, very out of character for her to pick someone up off the side of the road, if that's what happened. Um, and then John says that uh, that night when she calls to check in with her, that she talks about the hitchhiker and how um, some people are meant to be in your life for a certain reason. And maybe it was Fauna that was meant to be in this lady's life as kind of like, a, you know, helping her turn her life around moment from my impression. But but just kind of he was saying she was talking about angels and just sounded kind of disoriented a little bit to him. And he was like, oh, my gosh, what do you mean you're picking up hitchhikers? You know, that sounds very dangerous. Um, what do you what do you make of all that? Well, again, Fauna, from what I've heard, is a very compassionate and empathic person. Mm-hmm. So even though she would normally not do something like that, Um, clearly her guard was down during this time period. Um, her normal psychological strengths and coping mechanisms would not be fully in play. And as we talked about it, she's not necessarily appearing to make rational, fully rational decisions. And so a female hitchhiker certainly lowers our guard 
you know, true. Um, if you see a, a male hitchhiker, your guard is immediately up. Right. And that's just because men can physically hurt you. Right. Um, even, even without a weapon. Uh, of course, we know women can, too. But something about the way our brain rapidly assesses a situation gives women more empathy, more compassion, and we feel less threatened, especially if we look at them and they look kind of pitiful. Right. You know? Like they need help. Um, yeah. And the only thing that would engender more empathy is if it was a child, we would almost without a doubt, any person with any piece of care in their heart, if they saw a child, you know, by themselves instantly is drawn to that child to help them. Absolutely. So I think, I think this, the fact that it's a female hitchhiker probably went beyond her normal guardedness, her state of mind added to that. And she did something out of character with her normal sense of safety and security. That doesn't surprise me at all because she's a caring and empathic person. And then the thing that kind of confuses me is to hear the report from her father that she was kind of not in her normal state of mind when he talked to her on the phone that evening um, post, you know, caring for the hitchhiker. Right. It sounded like, you know, talking about angels, either she was really into that kind of, you know, we get into that state of mind every now and then in life where we really see the the big picture clearly. And I call them mountaintop moments, but crises can do this to us as well, hmm. where all of a sudden the worries and the, the bothers and the troubles and the busyness of life just falls away and you get your aha. And, and I've had ahas all throughout my life. I call them spiritual ahas myself, where I'm like, oh, I get it. Yeah. Like, I see so clearly what the purpose of my life is and what I really need to be focusing on are the the big priorities, not all of this minutia. It's possible that, that her state of mind was in a big aha for her mm-hmm. because she's talking about spiritual things. She's talking about angels. She's talking about I'm in this woman's life or she's in my life for a reason. And so that could simply be that aha moment was really hitting her as she was encountering this woman and seeing the higher purpose, or it could be a little bit of a nod toward, you know, maybe she was uh, having some type of psychological crisis that, that was moving the way her, her thinking normally is into some unusual thinking. And there's no way again for me to tell, but that information certainly says she, she could have been either. And, and I couldn't possibly tell you which. Sure. Yeah, I think that that's really uh, interesting. And, and Sean, you know, also talked about that, that it could have been that she was feeling under pressure in that moment. But from the conversation she had with John, it was such a pleasant experience for her to have this moment with this lady and to help her in whatever way, whether that was, I don't know if she gave her money um, or if she just dropped her off at a location, but um, it sounded like she felt really good about it. Like happy with herself for contributing or, and I think, um, you know, she's been so down at that time. She's, she's got so many negative things that just 
one positive thing is just like, oh, something to hold on to. Like, wow, that was a really great feeling that I got from helping her. And that's such a nice relief from what I have been feeling. Right. Your your podcast, um, I believe you talk about, you know, she was on a mission and maybe you used a different word. The pilgrimage. But the pilgrimage. Mm-hmm. And and let's just go into that state of mind for a minute. If if Fauna had always kind of felt like a deeper kind of thought pattern or calling in her life. And she, as we kind of tend to do, got caught up in some sidetracks, you know, like trying to make a living and, you know, uh, all the, the daily demands upon us. Busyness is one of the most dangerous things in the world that can really derail us from our true purpose. Well, when you've lost your mother and your sister and now your super close brother, you know, it, it's one of those things that could just really activate that deeper sense of this is what I'm here for. This is what I've always been thinking about. And that could be negative or positive, but it's consistent with the possibility that now she's starting to live out in her mind the pilgrimage. And that would mean helping somebody in distress. And that would mean it was a perfectly rational, you know, clear decision for her to have helped. And then she felt really good about it. And she seemed calm and almost comforted by that aha behavior. Yeah, that's that is something that I've thought of as well. Yeah, she seemed and I think that that's a good that that sounds great. Like if you can, you know, redirect your life from a loss and have these aha moments where you're like, gosh, this is what's really important. I can only imagine that that is what, I mean, this is complete speculation, but that that's what Dallas would have hoped for, you know, that maybe the loss of him could help her trigger. Oh gosh, this is what I want to be doing in my life. Like, what have I been doing all this time? Same thing that Sean said to me. He said um, several things about uh, Dallas losing Dallas brought him closer together with their mutual friend, Tom. And it also just kind of reminded him that like, we can't just sit on our butts and do nothing with our life. Like all these things that we talk about, we want to do, we want to build the hot rod and we got this four by four that's sitting out there and all this stuff, you know, he's like, it really pushed me to, it's time to do that stuff. We need to go do that stuff. And it sounds like maybe Fauna could have been having a similar thing. You know, it's time for me to start living my life in whatever way it is that she has in her mind that she wants to do that. Absolutely. And it's one of the most important things that I try to communicate with people in my practice who have lost somebody that when you lose somebody, you can get caught up in the loss. You can get caught up forever in what they used to be and what you used to have with them. Mm -hmm. And you can stay static in that the rest of your life. But really that doesn't change the fact that they're not here anymore. It does not. We all know that. Right. Um, But that's a way that the mind actually keeps them here for you. Right. If if, if we stay in the past and we stay with what we don't have and what we miss, we're actually still in relationship with them in their old way that their physical body was here. Mm-hmm. But now what we're looking at is what I, what I'm always encouraging people who've lost to do instead 
is validate your feelings with someone who listens well, someone with big ears and a small mouth. That's the healers that are walking the earth for those who are suffering. And so have your feelings validated and your your angst and your hurt and your desperation validated, but turn toward the purpose of the future because you've lost this person and it's rocked your world. It's exploded your life. That massive crisis could lead you to 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 get to the aha, to the seriousness of your existence, Mm. to the most important things you've always flirted with in the back of your mind. And let this lead you to a life purpose that because this amazing person you've lost, or let's even go a little further and say, this is the the confusion of losing people. Maybe they weren't an amazing person. Maybe they were a person who harmed you. Maybe they were a person who you never got good closure with. So, you know, even though they're, it, it's a tormenting you in a way because you never got closure or because they harmed you, that could still lead you to go and do the thing you've always been thinking about doing as the priority of your life. Yeah. I think if we were all in touch with the big aha about what we're called to do, what we feel led to do, our pilgrimage here, mm-hmm. wouldn't the world collectively benefit from more of us staying in touch with that and following through? And grief can be a springboard for people to do that in their life. Yeah, which is a really beautiful thing. I mean, I have experienced it now. Um, I've I've spoken with three three different families that have lost somebody unbelievably close to them, um, a child, which is is earth shattering. And each family has um taken on this new purpose and it's so inspiring. It's so um it's such a silver lining there's there's a lot of silver linings in these terrible situations but um you know with the Michael Bryson case his family starting this foundation to help other families um and other people who are struggling with addiction um that is a huge uh kind of like their pilgrimage and it's been this beautiful outcome to something absolutely horrific even though they're struggling with the lost still of Michael and the uncertainty of not knowing what happened. Um, that's a very beautiful thing that's come out of it. Another family I talked to, um, uh, Ryan Stuka's mom, Heather, and same thing. They started a foundation to help, um, families that their loved one went missing and in like a rural setting where it's a search and rescue. And, and she's really amazing about talking about, grief and loss. And now she speaks with other families and helps them through this horrible um, experience. And so I, I certainly have noticed and appreciate that there is this deeper purpose to these people's lives that unfortunately had to have this awful occurrence happen to, like you said, kind of springboard it, but there is something beautiful to come out of that. Truly something beautiful and how many and it's and it's countless it's in the the millions and and maybe tens of millions of charitable organizations that have emerged from this exact scenario like you're talking about you know our amber alert nationwide amber alert system came from a horrible loss um and so i'm taken back to you know i'm a spiritual guy and uh, and so I'm taken back to understanding why is there so much suffering in this world? And 
So I just accept that, you know, if we had a God that was not wanting to be a controlling God, but wanted us to be in relationship Mm -hmm. with him, then he would have to allow us free will and choices and he would have to allow us to suffer. But in the big picture, you know, it's kind of like the story in the Bible of Joseph. You know, he suffered in a way that I've never suffered and hopefully never will. Right. But his, his brothers threw him in a in a pit to have him killed. And then what? I don't know how many decades later he rises to the, the leadership of Egypt. Right. And what's what's really wild about that is, you know, he could have exacted all sorts of revenge on his brothers who did that to him. He suffered in, in unimaginable ways throughout all those years. Mm-hmm. And <laughs> instead, he says, what you intended for evil, God used for good. Yes. And I just think that's mind blowing. It's like, oh, wow. You know, that is the story over and over and over of humanity. There is a force of evil out there that wants to harm, wants to bring us down and uses events and people to do that. And instead, so many people turn their life towards something from something horrific to something that heals and nurtures and cares and brings the world and all of humanity to a better place. That is the most amazing turn of events ever, in my opinion. Absolutely. Yeah. Thank God for that, because it really. Yeah. I mean, I don't know where we would be at if we didn't have the opportunity to turn something ugly into something beautiful. Um, Yeah. The world would be a lot, a lot uglier. (laughs) Right. And, And I would say, you know, sometimes we talk about these real idealistic things or these really big things like changing the world. But I like to really just bring it down to I change the world through me. I don't have to start some massive global organization or statewide organization to to really have changed the world. Um, Gandhi said, be the change you want to see in the world. And I love that because, you know, in this situation, John and Sean are already, you know, doing things that are changing the world. It's led you to a podcast that's changing the world and everyone who's hearing it and the people who are helping John, those, those women who are helping him, they're literally becoming new in the way that they're encountering the world and the world is experiencing them differently. And it's all good, even though it's horrible is what started this. Right. That's so true. And it's bring it brings people together. I've seen that more than anything, I think, too, is that these losses are bringing friends together, family together, people who haven't spoken in a long time together because they have this mutual loss. Um, and like you said, you know, crying with somebody is like a healing, a healing thing and grieving with somebody. And so I've seen so much of that. And it's um it's really amazing the way that community comes together. People who don't even know these families, they'll never meet them. They live in, you know, here you are, you're in Texas. You will probably never meet these families, but here we are all connected by this, by this mutual loss. And um, it's really amazing the way it ends up. And I'm, I'm really grateful that there are um, silver linings like that in these situations. It's hard to quantify the impact of 
someone like Fauna going missing or losing someone like Dallas. Right. But, you know, you can go back to that game that that some of your listeners will know from maybe a decade or so ago. Uh, six degrees of Kevin Bacon. Oh yeah. <laughs> you know, I mean, if like you can track any movie back to Kevin Bacon, if you want. And, uh, <laughs> and so the, the, because he was in so many, right. he's connected to every movie somehow. And so it, it was kind of like one of those awareness builders for everybody. Like, how is that possible? There must be some trick here. No, when you throw a stone into a pond, we've heard the metaphor. The, the ripples reach all shores. It, mm-hmm. it goes, you may not see them by the time they're finally hitting the shore, but they're still there. It's affected the entire pond. And so it is a massive impact. And, it, and one of them that you just pointed out is critical. Fellowship and connectedness is mm-hmm. one of the major reasons why we're here. And what does the world tend to do? The bad news, heck, what has COVID done to us? It tends to want to catch us up into fear worry, horribly anxiety for some, mm-hmm. certainly stresses us. And it what it does is ultimately disconnect us from ourselves and others. Right. So this is bringing people together. And that in and of itself is a major purpose, a higher purpose and a healing. Absolutely. Yeah, that's um that's amazing. I, I'm so glad that I got to talk to you about all this. I think this is exactly what People need to hear. People need to remember um, these. There's so many moving pieces to a case like this. And um, it's really hard to get in somebody's mind. We can't really get inside her mind completely. Even as a professional, you can't get inside her mind. But you can kind of just lead us to, um, you know, these different things that you noticed and and how that how that may play a role in this in this case. And I think that it all. It all kind of makes sense with what you're saying. The grief is the big piece here that that triggered this whole thing and that kind of um, launched Fauna into this situation. And we don't know what ended up happening, but we know that that's what started it. That's right. You know, I, I listened to Sean uh, in the episodes he was in and John in the early episodes, and you can just their grief is palpable. And mm-hmm. you're, if you're listening to that and you're a empath, a person who connects to other people and what their experience is from their view, mm-hmm. you can't help but listen and have your own lump in your throat and tears, you know, welling from your eyes about these, these men who are in such pain and the women, the female supporters of John who are in such pain. And, they're caught in what's called ambiguous loss. That's what they're caught up in is mm-hmm. because Fawn is gone. She's physically absent, but she's psychologically still connected, still present. And they don't know what happened to her. She's literally nowhere to be found right now, which is a good description of what their experience is. Right. That ambiguous loss is so complicated to move through the stages of grief because how can you ever hit acceptance? When you can't find a body, right. when you can't when you can't see him again and touch him again, that's why we have funerals. That's an, an important piece of acceptance is seeing the person no longer alive mm-hmm. and putting their body in the ground and covering it up, 
this is a ritual that we share around the world to help us bring closure and acceptance. So it's horrific that John and Sean and those connected to this case don't get to have that easily. And it complicates their grief so much. And they need fellowship. They need connectedness more than any of us right now because that helps them to process this. So, again, the rallying around the loss of fauna forces connectedness, which is very healing. Yeah, absolutely. And I, you know, I know that they've had a a good community, but I just want to continue to um, have people reaching out. The community has been amazing and asking, how can we help? And um, just kind of lifting them up and thinking about them, I think is, is super helpful. And just letting them know, you know, in whatever way that we can, that we're here, we're experiencing them, this with them, you know, in the same way, but um, we, we feel their grief and we feel the loss of fauna as well. Yes, absolutely. I'll say one last thing that comes to mind. When I heard John and his, his pilgrimage right now, his mission. Yeah. He is so driven to find fauna and he's been out there over and over and over by himself. Who knows where Mm -hmm. searching for fauna. It just, again, reminds me so much of what what God does for us. You know, uh, the the Bible talks about, um, you know, and I'm a Christian, so I, I know other people think differently from me. And that's okay, But but. You know, the way I see things is Jesus, he says, I am the shepherd. I'm the good shepherd. And he tells a story in a parable. And he says, if if one of my lambs is lost, I'm going to leave everything else behind. I'm going to leave all my other lands, the 99 behind, and I'm going to go and I'm going to search for that one. And I will search for that one until I find it. Mm-hmm. And when I find it, all of heaven will rejoice. And I think we can so see that through John. Like he's literally trying to leave behind everything that he can to search for his one. Yes. And 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 if he finds Fauna, hopefully alive, yes, he will be forever, forever ecstatically, euphorically changed for the rest of this life. Yeah. He'll celebrate in a way that celebration and ego doesn't matter because it'll be the most mind-blowing, cherishable moment of his life. Right. And and so I really get a picture of who God really is when I see father devoting his life pursuing daughter and and never really resting and being satisfied until he gets an answer or hopefully finds her. Right. Yes, it's absolutely the the love of a father is unmeasurable, but um, watching John go through this and just seeing him push through, I mean, day in, day out, literally hoofing it on his feet up, you know, driving the, I actually just went up to the spot where her car was found. It is not an easy drive. These are back mountain roads that he's very familiar with just driving behind him. I could tell <laughs> he's, he's <laughs> driven this road a lot. And um, he just has no stop in him. It's just not an option. And he's, he basically told me, you know, I have resolved that this is what my life is going to be now. And part of that makes me really sad because, um, you know, that's a, that's a hard place. He's, he's stuck in this really hard 
part of this where he is positive that she's out there. She's in danger. She needs help and he has to find her. And that's such a, um, a stressful place to be all the time, you know, but it is is an amazing thing to see the perseverance and just the willpower. No, I mean, people have told him, John, you need to stop. You need to rest. You need to do this, you you know, because they're, they're worried about him, but his willpower and perseverance is unmeasurable. And it, it is absolutely um, inspiring. And like you said, it really shows you imagine, I mean, if that's what, if that's what him as a father is capable of, imagine what our father is capable of, you know, on a bigger scale. So I absolutely hear you in that. And, um, I agree. It's, it's, um, it's overwhelming a little bit. It is. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's amazing. Thank you so much for, uh, for all your time and, and for pouring over the details of this and, and kind of being along the ride with us here. Um, I will certainly, we're going to, you know, keep going and I have a few other people that are, that are going to kind of weigh in on this, but, um, I think that, that hearing the professional side of, of what her mind could have been doing and, and really getting into that is extremely important for people. Well, you're very welcome. And, um, certainly I'm, I'm into the story now of Fauna and John and Sean and all those who are searching and, and your, uh, part that you're playing. And so I'll be listening and praying and, and looking for the best outcome. It's clear to us that Fauna was in a state of intense grief when she left her house on June 27th. We don't know where along the line things went wrong, if ever. But now we have a better idea of what type of mindset Fauna may have been in at this time. Thinking about the animal brain state of mind Dr. Taft spoke of may help explain some of the stranger aspects of Fauna's timeline. I went to Grant's Pass and recreated Fauna's timeline And now I need to go back through and try and unravel it, starting with the night that she left. I'd like to thank our sponsors at Oregon Wild Rice. I love that this rice is locally grown and sustained right here in Harrisburg. And I was blown away by how flavorful and nutritious Oregon Wild Rice is. Their rice is a healthy, delicious, better choice side dish. So thanks again to Oregon Wild Rice for sponsoring Nowhere to be Found, and I'll post the link to their website in the show notes so that you can check them out. Next time on Nowhere to be Found. Just a couple of seconds after that, she yelled out, Dad! And, um, you know, I, I came out and she was peeling down the driveway. We've been asked how our listeners can contribute to the show, so we set up an account with Patreon. Check out the link in our show notes if you're interested in supporting our cause. You can also find it on our website, nowheretobefoundpodcast.com.